somebody said something that I felt was pretty accurate to describe our relationship. What's that? They said that you and I, because we're friends that used to date, yeah, that our dynamic is kind of like Jerry and Elaine from Seinfeld. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read that comment. I think Joyce Rockwood. There's no, somebody, was it her? Somebody said it. Yeah, it's like Jerry and Elaine, for sure. Mm-hmm. Would that's you a, say that that's pretty accurate? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. <laughs> and I feel like anyone who would understand a Seinfeld reference, that, that'd be an apt way to describe it, for sure. But no one's ever described us that way before, which I thought was really sweet. Yeah, I dig it. And I also think it's interesting because someone would have to know what Seinfeld is. Who doesn't know what Seinfeld Some is? Some fucking young-ass, stupid millennials probably don't know what Seinfeld you know, is. Now that you just said that rude comment, I don't think I could even share this. What? That's a rude thing to say. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't want people thinking that you're an asshole. Well, I have my moments. I'm trying to promote this, trying to promote this podcast. <laughs> I have, oh my gosh, the truth comes out have, about Jason Oh, Robo. wow. He has moments of being a judgmental asshole. Wow. Maybe we all do, though. Wow. I mean, the truth comes out. I have my moments. I do. It's, I do. They're it's rare. It's funny how we get like appalled by things like that when in reality, a lot of us actually say those things behind closed doors, no, right? I, I, yeah. And I say that simply because I've had experiences with younger people where I've brought up seemingly obvious pop culture references and they were like, huh? And I was like, but that happens what with year everybody. were you born? I'm sure you didn't get some references that older people brought up when yeah, you were and, and a, I'm, mil- and, and, a millennial age. And I'm fine with them shaking their fist at me and going, you young whippersnapper. You don't know a damn thing. It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Welcome to This Might Get Uncomfortable. I'm Jason Robel. I'm Whitney Lauritsen. Now, recently on the hot seat. And, well, literally and figuratively, it is a hot seat because we are in the closet at Whitney's house, in her cute tiny house in Hollywood. It's not hot in here. The other day it was. When I say hot seat, literally there have been times where in this podcast I feel very sweaty and hot. Why don't you say something? Well, because there's nothing to do. Yes, there is. I have air conditioning, weirdo. Wait, does the air conditioning run in the closet? No, but the closet's right next to the air conditioner. So if I turn it on, Yeah, but then then we'd have like the me. No, I'm just saying I can plan ahead. If you tell me ahead of time, but if then it's a hot day, but then, then just the, say, turn on the AC before I get there. But then the hot seat joke wouldn't, the whole thing now is I'm talking about the literal hot seat. So. But you're complaining about something and then telling me you don't want to change it. It's very confusing for okay, someone well who's then, type A like me. Well, then we'll change it, but <laughs> not right now because we're in the middle of recording I'm a fixer. There's, I don't know if that's like super masculine energy. Is it, I guess yeah. it is. I want to solve problems. Yeah. Sometimes people don't want you to solve their problems. Sometimes they want to solve them themselves. Are you talking about me specifically or are you talking in I'm ta- general? I'm talking about in general that sometimes people, when they're approached with a solution, they don't want it because there's an <laughs> egotistical part of themselves that wants to solve it themselves. Are you talking about yourself right now? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm literally talking <laughs> about in general, in general terms. But... Okay. But to get specific. Yeah, it's really – that's actually one of my biggest challenges. Yeah. Well, I, we were talking about this prior to recording this with – A lot of the courses and the trainings and the things that Whitney and I have put out in terms of not only digital but physical products is you talk to people and you hear their pain points, you hear their challenges and their struggles. And at the same time, you're like, I'm giving you this thing that can help you. And they're like, no, I'm good. Well, this is a digression. I think we have to do a separate episode on it. We do. We, we do. Have, we have something else in right. mind and to ho- keep us on track because also I'm type A in that way. The hot seat <laughs> is that we want to give you, dear listener, a really deep look into who we are as people, our journeys to come to this point of, first of all, of course, why we created this podcast, the intention behind it, but a deeper look into who we are as people. And And clearly you've already learned something about me. If you didn't know this already, I'm a type A personality. Right. So we're off to a good start. So in this framework, I'm going to just jump in and I'm probably going to learn a lot about Whitney because when she interviewed me on the hot seat, there were things she didn't know about me that came through. So I'm sure that's going to be the case. So, But our aim is not to make this 
too interviewee. We want this to feel like a conversation as well. Yeah. So since we're going to flow with this and improv as we do, Mm -hmm. when you feel that you have the ability to solve a problem for someone, what do you get in return for that? Why is that so important to you in this type A aspect of your personality that you were talking about? What is that energetic or spiritual exchange when you solve something for someone? What is that feeling like? What is that exchange like for you? And why is Mm -hmm. it important? I've thought about this before. And one of the things that I struggle with sometimes is articulating a lot of my thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's probably one of my biggest challenges is that I have a lot of ideas in my head. I think I kind of, uh, maybe it's like a censorship or something or a fear of not saying it right. That's like actually a pain point for me is wanting to say the right thing and being afraid of saying the wrong thing because I'm very sensitive to people that give non-constructive criticism or maybe they think that they're giving constructive criticism, but they do it in a way that feels hurtful to me, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm not trying to necessarily say the right thing for you, Jason, or for you, the listener. I haven't quite sorted out how to articulate the reasoning behind solving problems and what that feels like for me. I mean, on a surface level, I would say, hmm, I have some innate desire to help people. And I think most people do, actually. I think in general, as human beings, we often feel like in order to really contribute to our communities, to society at large, We want to play a role. We want to feel like we have a purpose. Mm -hmm. We want to feel like we're doing something good. And I think that goes in general for human beings back to just our society and how if we don't contribute and we're not valuable, then why should other people contribute to us? So it's kind of this exchange, right? Yeah. And I love studying psychology and going back historically to understand what human beings have been like throughout all the different periods of time. And if we go back to this tribal mentality, it's that we are all working together. We are all contributing in some way for the betterment of that community. So if you don't have a role, if you don't have something to offer of value, then you're pretty much useless. And maybe Mm. there's just like this deeper thing for humans in general, but perhaps for me is that I don't ever want to be useless because I want to be involved. I want to make a difference. And I also have a natural desire to be in a leadership role, not from like as far as I'm conscious of. I don't think it's this idea of wanting to be number one or in charge or controlling others, although those feelings sometimes come up for me. I think the leadership, I mean, today is a great example. Jason and I just got back from what we thought was going to be this easy trip to the coffee shop in a different area of Los Angeles that ended up taking a lot longer than we planned because there were were some major streets closed in Los Angeles in my neighborhood today. And it was really fascinating to observe how other drivers were handling these situations. And over and over again in my head, I'm sitting there like, I don't know if it's something that's developed over time or I've always had in my life and maybe just wasn't as aware of until recently. But I'm someone who's incredibly strategic. So going back to that type A personality type, I want to solve problems. So when I'm in a car in a traffic jam, I'm sitting there thinking, not only how can I get out of this traffic jam, but how could I create an example to help other people get out of it? And a lot of times, human beings make choices that have a ripple effect negatively. And I don't want to be part of that at all. Like, I'll do whatever I possibly can to avoid having a negative ripple effect on society, right? So Mm -hmm. I want to be useful, not useless. Or I don't know, what's the word of, so full and less, they seem like opposites, but there's got to be another term of like, you're having a negative effect, not just like a neutral effect, right? So Mm -hmm. not just having any use, but sometimes we do things that are taking away, not adding to. Right. My aim is to add. So anyways, I I just I it's kind of like I want it's like doing something for, for the greater good. Mm-hmm. Right. Is like I know that as individuals and again, being in a traffic jam is a perfect example because we've all witnessed a traffic jam 
And we're sitting there thinking like, what's going on? What, what's causing this traffic jam? And sometimes it's that domino effect of one person makes one small decision. Right. And then everybody else in the line of cars either starts making the same decision or that 10 seconds that you made a poor decision has a, a ripple effect that adds up. It's cumulative, right? right? So it's like interest where it's not that there's a 10 second delay. That 10 second delay that you have, it builds up over time, right? What's the term for investing? There's a word for the compounding. compounding. Yes. Mm-hmm. All of our decisions as human beings have a compounding effect or can have them. Right. Right. So it's also like that butterfly, that phrase of like, if a butterfly flaps its wings, it can cause a massive ripple effect that affects us for however long. Mm -hmm. And I just would rather do something that not only benefits me, but has a positive effect on other people. So I guess that's long answer to that. Well, extrapolating this mentality you have just kind of on a global level, right? Is it ever, first of all, frustrating to you to look at a world where people are making, quote, poor decisions with their oh, health, yeah. with the environment, with how they treat other people, with <laughs> their sure. relationships. And then how do you on a macro level, right, be in this world where we crept up to 8 billion people yet? I don't know. We're hovering around the 8 billion people mark. I mean, to look at the challenges we're facing on this planet, which are innumerable, right? We're aware of what these challenges are. With your desire to help people and be productive rather than reductive to contribute something positive rather than negative to the this planet. How do you stay focused and positive and keep moving forward when perhaps some days you might look around you and see nothing but bad choices and people being negative and hateful and hurtful and violent in a world that's full of those things? You well, know, so how do you with that philosophy move forward in life? Right. Well, since one of my aims with these introduction episodes is, is to share our past. Yeah. Please. And not just to give tips. I would go back to different phases in my life where I think growing up, I was very shy as a kid. Mm-hmm. From what I can tell, I don't really have a ton of memories of that shyness, but I can see it in photos and videos of myself. The expression on my face looks like I was feeling very shy. And I think partially, maybe more than partially, is that I'm introverted. Yeah. And to this day, I feel a bit uncomfortable in social situations, as many introverts do. And part of that is because there's this energetic balance that you're always trying to figure out is how much energy do I have in this situation? And if I get depleted, what do I do? Right. And I I get a little bit of anxiety from that. This is also something interesting I learned. There's this book called Genius Foods that I just finished reading. And highly recommend it. We'll put it in the show notes of wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And in this book, Genius Foods, the author talks about how genetically we can be predispositioned to things. And so apparently, based on genetic testing I did through 23andMe, my genes predisposition me to be a worrier mm-hmm. and to have anxiety and to be introverted, which is really fascinating. And I actually think about one of my grandmothers was a massive worrier. My dad is a worrier, probably as a relation to that. So, you know, this nature versus nurture thing. And it's funny because I try now in the present time not to worry too much because it's not useful. But when I look back on those old videos, I have a lot of home videos of myself from a kid and see the expression on my face and how just... I looked like I was worried or something. Interesting. Up. Really? Yeah. I, at least, again, as an adult, that's how I interpret it. And I think about the struggles I had in school, for example, of maybe feeling like not good enough, especially academically. That was a huge struggle for me is I felt like I was always at a B level, but I really wanted to be an A level. But I just at some point figured I'm just not an A student. It was very rare that I would get A's on things. And I think my wow. school had high standards. I went to a wonderful public school in Massachusetts. I had great teachers and they pushed us hard and they had a great impact on me. But there was something for my self-esteem of not getting these top grades, partially because of the culture of my school. Again, most students there really wanted to succeed, which was a great environment for me. But my parents also gave me, put a lot of pressure on me to be successful. And I think my dad just like 
My dad's an incredibly intelligent man. Both my grandfathers are very intelligent. My grandmothers, like I said, were a little bit more on the the worrier sides. Maybe all my grandparents were, but my grandfathers were like very well-educated, very passionate about research. I think I get a lot of those traits from the men, my dad and both my grandparents. My grandfathers, I mean, they were just loved books. They were always tinkering with things. They were trying to figure out solutions. And so genetically and also nurture influenced me that way. And then the environments that I was in, again, with a school system, there was, I felt a lot of pressure to be a good student. But at the same time, I felt like I kept hitting my limits and I didn't really know how to overcome them. So I think over the years, I naturally started to look for strategies. One of them was being the teacher's pet, which was mm. literally what I was named in the school superlative. How do you pronounce that word? You're not talking about the yearbook. Yeah, in the yearbook, you get like every the the class will name and yeah. vote on people. What's yeah. that called? I don't know. I just I think that's what y- I just yearbook. said. But I'm I also have trouble pronouncing things. This is part of my fear of of saying things wrong. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is I hate it when I can't pronounce something correctly. I get very self-conscious. Anyways, I was voted teacher's pet because one of my coping mechanisms in high school, as I got older, so as I went up the years, the grades, and also when I was in college, I was somebody that would sit in the front row of class and show the teacher that I was paying very close attention. And I would also be the, the student that would chat up the teachers because I realized at some point in high school that that was one way I could get better grades. Mm. I actually soak up knowledge in general. So I think part of it was that I, I wanted to be able to listen and pay attention. This happens to me still even like when I go to yoga class. I'm a front row student. Like I want to be at the very front of the class. It helps me focus. I don't want to be distracted. I do this at events too. I don't like sitting in the back row because a lot of people that sit in the back I found tend to be not paying as close of attention. And I get easily distracted when I see other people not paying attention. So in high school and college, I would sit in the front row to become closer to my teachers. They would notice me more. I could pay closer attention. And all of those things combined would help me get better grades. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, I wasn't even aware of why I was doing that. My awareness of the why is now Right. <laughs> in these more recent years. But but naturally, I was just that person that was looking for the strategy to perform better because mm-hmm. I've whether it's a genetic nature versus nurture type of thing, something has always driven me to succeed. Right. And not just for myself, as I said earlier, but it's like setting an example for other people. I remember when I got that label as teacher's pet, I was kind of embarrassed. But maybe there was a couple people that like admired the fact that I was a teacher's pet, you know what I mean? Like yeah. in my head, maybe I thought, oh, everybody thinks I'm such a nerd. But hopefully there were a couple people that were like, oh, like maybe I should participate the way Whitney does. Maybe they were jealous that I always befriended my teachers, right? Like, <laughs> and again, I still do that to this day in yoga class. I'm friends with all of my yoga teachers, <laughs> whereas most students I observe, they go into class, they go in the back, they barely interact, they leave. Having a, a dynamic with the teacher has a lot of benefits. Yeah. When you talk about your upbringing, right, and you talk about childhood, these challenges that you went through, in adulthood, I think we have this tendency, right, to live out or recreate some of the situations from our childhood that were perhaps challenging or have the same kind of personality archetype like you just mentioned, the same way you engage yoga classes, the same way you engaged your high school teacher. So if you look back on your childhood, are there any situations or things that you see popping up in your adult life now that you're like, oh, that's like, I mean, the reason I go there is because I always draw a parallel in my mind. And I think you and I have talked about this between Whitney and I have talked about this, how high school in particular, the social dynamics of high school very much mirror social media right now, Mm -hmm. where there's a lot of popularity (laughs) and there's clicks and there's communities within communities. And You use the right filters and the right angles and the right hashtags to get noticed and get likes. And I guess I'm just trying to extrapolate this conversation since we're talking about your childhood. If you see any social dynamics from childhood that you're like, oh, this is still playing out in my adult life, or maybe I'm still struggling with this Mm -hmm. thing. Is there anything like that? It's really interesting. I actually started to become very 
drawn to psychology in high school. I had a great psychology class and teacher. Oh, okay. And I minored in psychology in college. And I don't I talk know about that. that very much. I'm sure I've told you this before, but I think people forget about it because I just don't bring it up that much. I went to film school at Emerson College in Boston because I was planning on having a film career. And we've talked about this in, in some other episodes, which we can link in the show notes if you're curious about that side of my story. And I decided at this art school that I was at, right? Emerson is a very creative school, but they still have other types of classes beyond filmmaking and, and acting and all that stuff. So I studied psychology. I took a ton of psychology classes so I could minor in it. And that's all because of high school. And this one teacher, it was like a requirement to take the psychology class in high school. And I loved it so much. I love learning about it. And I think that's also part of a coping mechanism is that if I felt like if I could understand people better, then maybe I wouldn't take things so personally, right? So what I mean by that is the more we deconstruct things like social media, we can start to understand society, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. society is based on so many levels of social agreements. Yes, yeah, social agreements. But also, like I said, it's based in a lot of old psychology, mm -hmm. right? So some a lot of our behavior is not only if we are not aware of it, then we're just repeating the patterns of the past. Right. Right. So we're doing the things that our friends and our family members are currently doing and the things that our family members, our ancestors have been doing. And, and that's part of my passion with projects like Wellevator is Jason and I share this. We really want to help people break out of these old conditioned ways of yes, being. Yes, exactly. Or <laughs> subconscious belief systems yeah. that are running them and they're not aware. We want to raise awareness. Mm -hmm. So that you can choose as much of your thought processes and your emotions and your behaviors as possible. I don't know if we can control it to the extreme that we may want to. And so I think that's part of what's helped me a lot. And again, coming back to the coping mechanism is the more I could understand psychology and why I was making decisions and why people around me were making decisions, it helped me cope in social situations, right? And thank goodness I did not have social media in high school because I cannot imagine how that would have affected me. I think one thing that I'm still trying to get to the root of is something a lot of people struggle with, which is the feelings of not enoughness, but also the desire to be socially accepted and having approval and validation. I think most of us experience that in high school. And yeah. I, I just can't imagine being in high school and having social media and feeling like not only are you keeping up appearances while you're physically around these people, but then online when you go home, the weekend, the summer vacations, like you are basically on all the time with your peers. Mm -hmm. They can see you and what's going on in your life all the time. And if you're not on social media, maybe they're judging you for that, too. It's like there's a lose-lose situation. And it's like the more I think about that, I feel so sad how a lot of there's a lot of different opinions about whether or not kids should have access to you know, cell phones and devices and television and all that stuff. There's actually a lot of data that it's horrible for our brains, especially I think our brains are developing until we're like 21 to 25, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's old. Most of us have graduated college by that point in our lives, like mm -hmm. in how much ourselves are formed during those years. And these people are on all these devices all the time, like not only disrupting themselves on a chemical basis, like just the way that the screens are affecting our eyes and taking in all of this information all the time. But like the social side of it is crazy. So yes, a long answer to your question. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's hard enough as, as an adult being triggered by social media now and having some old emotions come up that I experienced in high school. Right. Mm -hmm. But imagine having that happen simultaneously as a teenager. You're navigating school. And your relationships and all your crazy hormones, but doing that publicly online, oh man, yeah, that's that's rough. I mean, you just describing it sounds like an insurmountable amount of pressure. 
And it's interesting, too, though, is that I, as a kid, though, I could have seen myself wanting that experience really badly. And I understand why it appeals to people, right, is I've loved technology for as long as they can remember. Again, my grandfathers and my dad, all three of them have been really into technology. So we had a computer at a time when there weren't that many computers, believe it or not. Anyone uh, that's beyond the millennial age and listening right now probably remembers those days where we didn't have iPhones and iPads and computers and all of this access that we have now. Jason and I both grew up at the dawn of the internet age, right? Like we experienced, we both of us can remember what it was like to get internet access for the first time, to have cell phones for the first time, kind of a amazing thing to look back on. So I remember those formative years of my dad having a computer and like, I remember computers evolving over time and, and being like, your friends would have like some fancy, expensive computer. And it was like this huge deal. It was, I remember getting my own first personal computer. What was it? I don't know. My, my dad basically would get a computer. He would use it. And then when it was like falling apart, he'd give it to me and my sister, right? Like my first laptop I had when I did this film program in New York City before I went to college. And my dad gave me his old laptop. And I was like, again, I was probably one of the only people there that had a laptop. Wow. Right. And so I remember when the cell phones started coming out. Right. So my point being is that I love technology. And so when I got access to a computer, when I finally got that first cell phone, even before my cell phone, I got my own private phone line. So my parents had their line and I figured out how to get a second line built into her house and then how to get my own phone that had I could switch between the two lines so I could answer either one. I had my own answering machine. I felt like on top of the world when I figured all that stuff out. And again, this is not something that a lot of my friends had. They usually had to call through their parents, but I had like my own separate phone line, which was so cool. And then when cell phones came in, that's basically what those were. So my point being, I'm probably if social media had been available, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that I would have been very excited to use it. And then once you're in that matrix, though, there's so many pros and cons like there's and to this day, it's like the pros are you can connect with somebody from all around the world, which, again, I was on the earlier days of AOL Instant Messenger. I remember getting access to that as a teenager and thinking that was like the greatest thing ever because you could <laughs> chat with people all around the world. Yeah. You could have these like pseudo relationships. You could pretend that you were somebody that you weren't. My female friends and I would go on AOL Instant Messenger and chat rooms and pretend to be like older than we were. And like we'd flirt with these boys and like we didn't know who they were. They were complete strangers. <laughs> but we weren't really posting pictures because we didn't have a method of easily taking pictures of ourselves back then. I mean, that's the other thing that's funny is we haven't even had access to these cameras for very digital cameras. Like I remember getting those and like being able to upload a photo to your computer so easily is like, that's still relatively new. But when I was a teenager, you know, we're taking like, we had disposable cameras and maybe we would use like an actual camera and put the little roll of film in, but you had to go get it developed and you had to pay a premium if you wanted it to be developed quickly, like that day. Remember mm-hmm. all that? Jason, of course. Of Jason's course. over here nodding. I mean, the things that we have seen in just our lifetimes are almost as crazy as what my grandparents saw in their lifetimes, or maybe equally as crazy if you really analyze it. So it's wild. There's a part of me that loves all the technological developments, but is also trying to be very conscious of how I use it, how I use social media and how I use technology, because we don't know the ripple effect that it's going to have. Sometimes I think about how much information I put out about myself online. Like if you go and type my name, Whitney Lortzen, you can find all these pictures of me, all these videos. I mean, hundreds of photos, thousands of videos, blogs, like interviews, like on and on the database that you could collect a lot of information about me just with a quick internet search. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of benefits to doing that if you're building a brand. But like, what about privacy? Well, that was going to be my question to you is in the information age that we're in with all of this access to so many details about so many people. I mean, this might just be probably not just me, but the first person you meet someone and you're like, I'm going to Google them. 
right? But my question to you- Or today, Jason met somebody and suddenly connected with them on Instagram. Yeah, it was just like, that's it. Let's follow each other And teenagers right now, apparently, they're all like following each other on Snapchat. Yeah. Like, did you know this, Jason? Because it's it's so funny. Like, we probably sound like we're dating ourselves a lot. We're not teenagers. No, we're not. It's funny, like- on Instagram or or YouTube, I'll come across videos that teenagers are making. And and from my understanding, they're using Snapchat. Like, they'll walk up to each other and be like, hey, what's your snap? Yeah. But, yeah. like, it's funny to me because that's like asking for somebody's number these days. For sure. Right? It is. But yeah. Jason, on the other hand, he does something in between. It's like Jason, really, I noticed when he meets somebody new, he'll connect with them on Instagram immediately. Mm-hmm. And that's like, again, his version of getting somebody's number. Yeah. I was going to ask in terms of privacy because you touched on what I wanted to ask you, are there things that you choose to keep private and why do you choose to keep those things private? You know, what things do you just feel? I really don't want to share this on my social profile. I don't want to talk about X. I don't want to share Y. Like, what are those things that you may feel like you want to keep private? And is there anything in that category for sure. you? Sure. What yeah. are those things? Well, again, I'm very aware that the things I choose not to share tend to be points of vulnerability. Okay. Because as I've openly discussed, I'm a very sensitive person, even though I've been creating content online for over 10 years. It, it hasn't really gotten easier for me to receive criticism. And I haven't quite figured out how to fully cope with it. I don't know if I ever will, to be honest. I mean, I've talked about this before, how people will say, like, develop a, a thick skin. But I don't know if I want a thick skin. And I don't know if it'll ever get thick enough to not be affected. I honestly don't know if anybody's skin is really as thick as they say it is, right? Mm. Like a lot of people like to pretend that they're not affected by other people, but I don't know if that's true. You know, you can talk a big game, but is that the reality of what you're experiencing? And one of our big aims with Wellevator is to be authentic and share. So for me, the things that I don't share online tend to be things that I feel vulnerable. Like I don't want someone criticizing me about it. Like a perfect example right now, we're recording this at the end of June, 2019. And I have been on a plant-based version of the keto low carb diet for almost a year. And I've barely talked about it. I've dabbled in it a little. I've suggested that I eat keto, but I have not come out and made like a YouTube video about it, which is typically what I would do and say, I'm eating a keto diet. I think about it almost every single day. And I sit here and I think, okay, like I really want to make a video about this. But then what my head goes to is, yeah, but people are going to come and criticize me. Mm. And I really struggle with sharing something when I'm afraid that someone's going to criticize me because I have a tendency to start to doubt myself when I get criticism. So one of the reasons I've been very careful with keto diet, for example, is because I want to make sure that this is like I've done my research and I'm really confident. I feel great, but am I confident it's the healthiest diet for me? I'm not sure yet. So if I posted about keto and someone said, well, that's not healthy for you, then there's a tendency for me at this point in my life to start thinking, well, maybe this isn't healthy. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And I can't tell you how many times it's happened, right? Like I've posted things, whether it's YouTube or Instagram, whatever. And there's just seems to always be somebody that's in disagreement or wants to tell you something that you're doing wrong. Right. And there's part of me that thinks like, well, no matter what I do, I'm going to receive that. So I might as well just post whatever I want. But there's also some things that I want to be really mindful of. I think the dietary changes are challenging for me because I have an eating disorder in high school and college. And I have to be very mindful not to be too obsessive about my food choices because when somebody says that's not good for you, again, coming back to my strategic type A personality, I will start to analyze and think, okay, well, maybe I should be doing this instead. And I, and it's basically like food becomes a strategy more than just like eating what I intuitively Mm -hmm. want to eat. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, it's an ongoing thing. So, so a food is sometimes challenging for me to share online because it seems like everyone has a different opinion about food. And again, I am vulnerable to that because of my food obsessiveness and the eating disorder I had. The other thing is that I tend not to post about romantic relationships 
because a few years ago I did. And <laughs> there's this one person on YouTube who got like, who had a very odd reaction, like an obsessive stalker, almost stalkerish reaction to it. Oh, I think I know who you're talking about. So this person wanted me to like disclose all this information about the, my boyfriend at the time. And they were like demanding that I say like what his Instagram was. Like this person was trying to manipulate me into sharing more. And it really creeped me out. And ever since I thought, I don't need anybody to know what's going on in my life romantically. I also like don't want to announce when I'm single and when I'm not because I don't want someone to like come and try to date me when I'm single, like some stranger on the internet. (laughs) It's just another vulnerable thing for me. Like I'd rather keep my relationship status until I'm like in a very committed relationship, maybe engaged or married, whatever. Like maybe I'll share more of that. I'm not sure yet, but at this point in my life, I've chosen, chosen not to talk about that. Yeah. And for me, I guess in, in that reflection of keeping, I always say like keeping certain things sacred. That's the word that I use in this super public age. But the other thing you mentioned about being an introvert, right? It's interesting because you've chosen to make my God, over probably all your combined YouTube channels, a thousand videos on I'm YouTube. I'm sure it's well over a thousand. Well over a thousand. Point, yeah. And you've done more speaking appearances. We actually, Whitney and I just did a speaking appearance last weekend for a small group. So it's interesting to notice that in you perceive since you were a young girl, this shyness and this introversion. And yet. Well, shyness and introversion are not the same thing. I know no, you know that, Jason, but I just want to clarify because I don't want to perpetuate that is a lot of people misunderstand introverts. So. Being introverted does not necessarily mean that you're shy. Mm -hmm. And I think what I was saying earlier is that either I was shy back then when I, let's just say like under 10 years old, Uh or I thought I was shy because I was introverted. And Uh so I didn't know how else to interpret it. Maybe other people were projecting onto me that I was shy. Or maybe as a little kid, I just didn't know how else to protect my energy. So I just manifested as shyness, right? I see. I wouldn't say that I'm a shy person. I'm actually more careful about engaging with people because I can become easily exhausted in social situations as an introvert. Yeah. And my question was going to be, since you willfully continue to choose a life as a public figure, as an entrepreneur, as someone who is on the microphone, on the camera, on a live stage, what's that like for you? As an introvert, putting yourself in the public eye, well, it's easy. what's that like? It's easy when I'm doing videos at home. I'm by myself. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that's the thing I've noticed about a lot of content creators. I've met so many over the years, YouTubers, Instagrammers, all these quote unquote influencers, content creators out there. And a lot of them are introverted. A lot of them are very uncomfortable in live social settings, but extremely comfortable in front of the camera when they're by themselves. Mm -hmm. And most content creators are by themselves, right? Like they're sitting at home recording a video on their cameras or their mobile devices or their webcams. And that's a completely different experience than being out and about in person. And as far as speaking appearances go, I've been practicing speaking since high school when we were forced to do that. (laughs) But I kind of think when I started to actually enjoy it, I mean, I've always kind of enjoyed being on stage period. Like in high school, I would try to be in plays whenever I could. I wasn't in that group of kids that always got the big roles, but I would be an extra or whatever they called it, like a, a bit player. I don't know what they call them. When you have a small role in a high school play. Bit part. Yeah, whatever it is, one line or whatever I was doing. Like I really enjoyed being on stage in that sense, performing. So I guess it's very similar when I'm giving a talk or being on a panel or whatever situation. It's like, it's still the joy of being on stage. And it also comes back to my desire to help other people. Mm -hmm. So I thrive in environments where I can be a leader and share something that I think is going to be of value to others, which is also a drive for me doing content. Yeah. You flipped the script though, didn't you, at, at, in your youth? Because you at some point wanted to be an actress, correct? And then you ended up going to, and again, this is covered in another episode, but Emerson Film School. So why- Well, it's why, not just a film school. Right. But why did that flip for you? Why did you not pursue being an actress? Hmm. I think it was, I didn't have the confidence to, because 
in high school, pre-YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. YouTube has changed the game for a lot of artists. We've seen Justin Bieber get his whole career on YouTube. There's, I'm sure, a few actors, or if not a few, but more than that. Like we see, it's actually really interesting to see how social media has changed it because now if you're a talent of any type, you just get on social media and you can share your talent with the world and maybe you'll be discovered. Jason and I did not have that growing up. So the only thing I had, and again, I think Jason as well, is being in school plays. I did not like, aside from enjoying being physically on a stage and performing, I was never a fan of plays. I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be on a camera actress. Ah. I never wanted to be a stage actress. The only reason that I was in plays in high school was because it felt like the only way for me to perform. Meanwhile, though, I was making films with my parents' video camera from a very young age. I think probably 13, 14 is when I started doing that. And once I realized I could make my own videos, that was my obsession. And that's what led me to film school. And then what happened is I wasn't even thinking about the acting side of it as much as I was thinking about the production side. Because yes, being on camera, that just has always come naturally to me. Mm -hmm. That's just an innate talent that I was blessed with for whatever reason. The production side, though, started to really get exciting to me. So I said earlier, I've I've always been really into technology. I loved learning about cameras. Mm. I loved figuring out set design. I loved editing. I loved directing. So what happened is I wanted to be all of that. There's a term that's not very commonly used. It's called auteur, A-U-T-E-U-R, I Mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. And that's basically describing a filmmaker that plays all the different roles, right? They're controlling, or not controlling, they're creating every part of a film. So a Woody Allen is is a great reference, somebody that's usually in his films. He's writing them, he's directing them, he's probably producing them. Like He's involved with all the major roles. That's what I wanted to do. That was the track that I was on. And that's YouTube just felt perfect for me when that came about because I could do all of that stuff and have continued to do that without having to work in the film industry. So basically, the on-camera stuff never ended. The on-camera stuff has been there since I was a preteen. I never stopped doing that. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm not acting per se, I'm still on camera and I'm still that auteur that is involved with every element. Was being famous ever a motivation for you or is it a motivation for you? I think yes, but it was kind of like, especially growing up and not having social media and all of these mediums of expressing yourself creatively, it felt like we basically would see celebrities and just think that they were cool. Like, wow, look at that great life that they're living. And wanting to have that too, right? I mean, that's how celebrity culture is positioned to us is look at this amazing thing that this person has. Look at this amazing life. Look at all the money they have and look at all the attention that they're getting. I think that's very appealing to most human beings, whether they admit it or not. And now we have social media fame. I guess like that's appealed to me, but I, if I really deconstruct why, it doesn't really matter that much. It's still hard. Like, I feel like it's very frustrating that I've been on YouTube for over 10 years. And like, my channel is like my Eco Vegan Gal channel just kind of plateaued and then like dropped. And that's hard for my ego because I felt like, oh, I'm not doing it right. Or people don't care about my videos anymore. Or I'm irrelevant now. Maybe I'm too old for YouTube or, you know, all those different self-defeating thoughts that come up. So if anything, there's more of this desire to be validated. It's not really about the fame. It's like, do people like me? Am I worthy? And how does that affect my career? Right. Right. I mean, that's a struggle is that a lot of our careers are dependent on how many numbers, how many followers, how many likes, how many comments, how many views, like all of those numbers. Those can make or break whether or not we get a certain paycheck. So it's not necessarily fame. It's like it's it's very connected to success. Yeah. You know? So we're in such a, a strange time in our culture, right, where there's like, where there's 
this pressure to keep up, this pressure to stay relevant, this pressure to produce, this pressure to have, I mean, there's just a lot of pressure, right? Especially being entrepreneur, being a content creator, being a public figure. When you have these thoughts, and you mentioned this of like not enoughness, right? In all of its myriad forms, what do you do? How do you handle that for yourself? How do you care for yourself when you're feeling these feelings of not enoughness, whether it's career related or personal related? Like, what's that process like for you? How do you sit with it? How do you talk to that part of yourself? Like, what do you do with that when it comes up for you? I mean, it probably comes up every single day, if I'm honest. Every day. Probably. I don't keep track of it, but (laughs) it's there a lot. Don't you think? Would you say the same about yourself or? I don't know about every, it's pretty consistent. Yeah. It's pretty damn consistent. (laughs) I mean, again, I don't know if it's every day, but I, I would probably guess it is every day because here's the thing. There's so many thoughts going through our heads constant. I forget what the statistic is about how many thoughts we have a day, but it's nuts, right? Yeah. And and this is part of my passion for awareness is the more that we can tap in and realize the things that we're thinking and the messages we're playing, the stories we're telling in our heads, it gives us the ability to shift a lot. So that's that's the key for me is awareness. So I have learned many different ways to become aware, whether it's choosing to go to a yoga class or a meditation class, uh, which I prefer over meditating on my own at home. That's a part of my discipline that I really struggle with is is just sitting down to meditate. And journaling really helps, having conversations with people. And when a big feeling comes up, like if I'm, when I say that I'm feeling not enoughness every day, it's usually very subtle. Okay. But when the big feelings of not enoughness, like the crippling feeling of like just wanting to lay in bed all day long or for Mm -hmm. a few hours, which that's pretty frequent for me, too. I mean, at least a few times a year, I go through a few days to a week of feeling that like sometimes I just don't I just get struck and I, I feel like I'm almost paralyzed by it during those times. First and foremost is to just let myself rest, because sometimes it's a matter of feeling burnt out. Or sometimes I'm just massively triggered and I can't quite think myself out of it. So, and sometimes it's so strong that I don't even want to go to yoga or meditation. And I know those are good for me, but sometimes it's such a powerful feeling that I just can only be still and I have to allow myself to be still. And the great thing about stillness, whether it's meditation or just literally lying in bed and zoning out, reading a book or watching TV or a movie, something like that. Those are the times that we can give ourselves permission and we're giving our bodies and our brains time to heal and relax and let go and surrender. And that's a lot of the times where the healing happens. Right. Right. Is that, you know, just like at night, our bodies are repairing themselves every night when we're sleeping, but most people aren't getting enough sleep. And then we have to remember that during the day, sometimes our bodies and our brains need a break. And sometimes if we don't give ourselves that break, if we don't pay attention to ourselves, our bodies will force us to. Yeah. So I think that's why it happens to me a few times a year on average is like maybe I just haven't been giving myself enough time to rest or recover and my body or brain are like, nope, you need to stop. Or there is some, I don't always see it as a gift. If something comes up and massively triggers that feeling of not enoughness in me so much so that I need to take a whole day off. It's a op- great opportunity to address it. I just have to face it head on and, and sit through the pain. Like the only way out is through, mm-hmm. you know? So it's a matter of acceptance. It's a matter of surrender. It's a matter of always cultivating my personal awareness. And going back to my coping mechanism since I've had as a teenager is studying psychology, self-help, personal development, because that helps me find some a better understanding of myself. Mm-hmm. And the more that I can understand myself, the more tools I have to work through any of those those times of healing. Yeah. When people ask you, as they inevitably do, what you do, we talked about you coming up and being a student filmmaker and content creator. There's a lot of titles, I suppose, that would be apropos to describe you throughout your life and career. Right now, how would you describe yourself? I really don't like that question. Well, that's why the name of this podcast is This Might Get Uncomfortable. Exactly. And I'm asking you because not to assign anything to you because people are so apt to 
look at your public persona and, oh, she's a blogger, she's a YouTuber, she's a blah, 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 blah. But independent of how other people perceive you, how do you perceive you? How do you perceive you? And it doesn't have to be a job title per se, but like, yeah, just how do you perceive yourself? Hmm. I suppose that's a deeper layer of that question. It is. And I want to get juicy. Yeah. Hmm. I don't like these questions because I feel like when somebody asks, I know Jason's not doing this, but I'm just saying in general, when someone asks, what do you do? I feel like I have to quickly answer in a concise way, right? There's kind of like the standard of if you don't have like your elevator pitch down. Right. (laughs) Which is something that we were taught in film school is like honed into you. Like you always have to have your elevator pitch. And I again, like I said, from the very beginning of this episode, it takes some time for me to verbalize things because it's not always wanting to say the right thing to please somebody. It's just that I'm very aware of, again, based on my studying of psychology, I notice how if you don't give somebody a concise answer or something that they can easily understand, they lose their attention. Yeah. (laughs) So I feel like this pressure and it's become very uncomfortable over time to answer. And so even now I'm like, how do I describe this? We don't have a time left on the podcast today. So it's like, I don't even know if I'll have an answer by the end of it. And so that's the most honest is that I want to go very deep with things. And Instead of giving a surface level response, which you can easily find on my Instagram bio, my LinkedIn profile, my, you know, you look me up and you can find all sorts of descriptions of what I do and who I am. But the depth of it is that I don't really have a concise title for it because it's always changing. I'll tell you, I'm, I don't align with the word influencer. I, I really cringe to be described that way. Why? <laughs> Why is well, that so it's just, again, it's like a box and it, it, it's like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with being an influencer per se, but it, I have a lot of negative connotations with it because I feel like for the most part, and maybe this is true of any, any career, is there's a, just so much superficial sides of that. And I find myself tapping into that superficial side and I get really frustrated with that. Like I take a picture and I want to edit it and I want it to have the greatest caption. And like, what can I do to get people's approval of me is basically the thought process. Like, how can I get people to follow me and like me and comment and all that stuff? And I don't like that side of my brain. I don't like what that social media has done for me in that sense. To go back to Jason's question earlier about high school, I mean, it is very similar to high school. It's like, how can I dress today? to make sure that I fit in with the other girls at school and how can I act and what can I do to get the attention of boys who I have crushes on? You know, it's like, what can I do to to get teachers to like me and approve of me and so I can get the right grades? It's like this high school is this constant self-evaluation. And I think that that's just part of human life in general, but it causes us a lot of stress of just trying to fit in and just trying to get the approval and trying to get things. And I think Social media feeds a lot into that. So hmm. I changed something on my Twitter bio the other day because there was this term and it's so new to me that I don't even remember it. So let me pull up my Twitter. I really love this. Oh, yes. I would say if I had to give you one concise term. Please. I really love the term wonder junkie. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's great. I wonder think that might have that might have been in Genius Foods. That's I, great. I read a lot. So speaking of wonder junkie, my addiction is information. So wonder junkie, I like Whoa, that. Wonder junkie is Isn't that good. That's very cool. And it's fun. It's really, really fun. And going back to just piggybacking on the comment you said about fitting in and conformity. I think the flip side of that is this pressure to be different. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the other side of that coin is, say, when we were starting our brands, right, or when we started out on our journey, and you've been vegan since? 2003. Right. Okay. So it's interesting to think about you starting as a content creator, taking all that filmmaking experience, taking all the on-camera experience, creating the Eco Vegan Gal brand. There were not many people creating healthy, plant-based, vegan, eco-friendly content when you, there was barely anybody doing it. True. Yeah. Now in the wellness industry, the vegan movement, eco-mindedness, everything, the whole wellness consciousness spectrum, there's just a tremendous glut of people. Evie, what should we do? Let her be. It is what it is. Marketplace now, right? Industry 10 years, 11 years after starting your brand. 
what's it like to be just kind of in this sea of, I call it a sea of sameness, where it seems like everyone's talking about matcha lattes and CBD and their yoga routine. And I'm not diminishing anyone in particular. It's just you scroll through social media, it seems like everyone's talking about the same stuff. How is it like you expressing yourself in a unique way amongst a glut of people doing it over the last decade? Well, we have to really tap into why do we even need to differentiate ourselves? It's a good question. That's the really interesting thing. I've been studying social media for over 10 years. And again, when you tie in social media with psychology, you can learn a lot of really interesting things. And if you start to understand why social media is constructed the way that it is, I'm currently reading a book about Facebook and it's like really breaking down the business side of it and the the psychological elements of social media. And Again, I think there's this just, we have to identify there's a big human desire to fit in, to be validated, to be taken seriously, to be important. I mean, I think what social media has taught me is it's actually helped me become less in my ego in a lot of ways when I realize that I'm not the only one doing something. Mm. Social mm. media has pointed that out. It's showing us how we are more alike than we may have realized before, Right. So for me, I spent all these years making videos with my friends and my sister before YouTube existed. And there's kind of like this, I've been doing that before YouTube, you know, like thinking that we're all on our high horse. But the truth is there are kids all across the world. If they had access to video cameras, they were probably making videos too. I just didn't know it because they weren't uploading them to a platform like YouTube. So when I was making YouTube videos early on, it was because I happen to have the tech skills to do that stuff. Mm -hmm. And not everybody had that knowledge. It, it took them longer to develop the knowledge because most YouTubers didn't go to film school like I did. So, yeah, I was, quote unquote, ahead of the curve simply because I was interested in filmmaking before most people had access to all the tools that I had. I had that privilege. I had the privilege of having a video camera and computers and teachers that understood filmmaking and all of those tools that not become as common until now. That doesn't mean that I'm any more important than somebody else who I just had different access to it, right? And so I think social media just shows us we're all very similar to one another. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not the only one who likes matcha. I'm not the only one who likes going to yoga classes. I'm not the only one who wants to take cute photos of myself so that I'll get the approval of other people, you know? And when I see things that are, quote unquote, annoying to me about other content creators, it gives me an opportunity to look within and say, well, if something's bothering me, that something that somebody else is doing is bothering me, like, what does that say about me and where I'm at? And a lot of the times it's like, well, I want to be the only one. Well, why do I want to be the only mm. one? Good question. You know what I mean? Like, some of us are drawn to being special and unique. That feels good and safe to us. That feels important to us. And so it's very humbling when you realize you're not necessarily special or unique. And if, if somebody is doing something that I'm like, how dare they do that? Maybe there's part of me that wants to do something that they're doing, but I didn't have the courage to do it. I was censoring myself and maybe I'm just envious that that person wasn't censoring themselves. Mm -hmm. I want to shift gears because we have a few minutes left here as we're rolling on. Well, can I show you something? I don't know. I think you might have gotten a peek when I stood up earlier, but... Yeah, I saw you had a little photo, <laughs> which is apropos because of the next question I was going to ask you. Oh, that's so... Who's this cat? You need to describe Whitney just, it. Okay, so Whitney... Um, <laughs> that's such a cute one, one of the things I've always challenged Whitney about is her actual parentage because she looks like a small Asian or Inuit Eskimo baby. <laughs> and I've always challenged, like, who are your real parents? And she's, I don't know who, there's a gentleman wearing a tie in the background. Whitney's got a very short haircut. She looks like she's in a very warm sweater and she's hugging a gray cat who looks semi-relaxed, semi-concerned about the hug. Who is this cat? <laughs> I don't know. You don't remember, I don't remember, remember the context. Is. I well, think that's like a family friend or something. You've clearly always loved animals. Yeah. Like that's, and, you, and you're so peaceful. The look on your face is so caring and so peaceful as you're embracing this cat. And now it all makes sense. Now it all makes sense. Okay, there's one more photo that really makes me laugh that also makes a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. So this is apparently Whitney in front of a school project. She's wearing like a Raggedy Ann type dress with 
blue with white and red buttons. She has really cool bowling shoes on, two-tone bowling shoes. I don't think that Red leggings. They look like bowling shoes. <laughs> and she's holding her arms behind her back, and her head, her chin is held high like a proud French bulldog. There's a meme she always sends me when she's proud of herself, of a Frenchie stretching with its chin up to the air. And so now this, yeah, this basically tells me all I need to know. You know what would be great is to actually, in the show notes, is to scan these photos in and put it on the page for this episode. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay, so the animal thing, one of the last questions I want to ask is, you always, you as in Whitney, she has this thing of um, sending me cute animal memes and cute animal photos. So if you had a dream experience with an animal, well, you can only pick one. I don't want this, oh, I'm going to go to Africa, then I'm going to go to Bahamas. No, one. Mm -hmm. You get one. A dream animal experience. What would that be? What's the first thing that comes mm. to your mind? Because I know how much you love animals. Obviously, that's one of the reasons that you're, you've been vegan all the years you have been. But a dream experience of like, oh my God, if I could only ex- meet this animal and oh. go to this place, that I type of thing. I know what it is. What well, is it? it's the one that's been the longest in my consciousness yeah. since I was a little kid. Okay. I made a pact to myself, which actually scares me now, but... <laughs> I feel like I'd be doing my younger self a disservice if I did not do this. What is it? When I was little, I was obsessed with great white sharks. I mean, I made it the determination. And it's funny that as an adult, I feel afraid of them. But as like a 10-year-old kid or however old I was, I was not very afraid of them. I was like, I want to see a great white shark face to face in one of those like cages that you can go down in. Yeah, That idea right now scares me why why does it scare me yeah the idea You're in a cage i know but there's videos of them breaking through the cages Whoa. and also the more i learn about animal entertainment the more i'm like well it'd have to be something i i knew was kind because they've been they're basically manipulating these sharks to come by the cages right yeah, probably putting like chum in the water yeah. or blood and or I'd, something. I'd yeah. have to do a lot more research to understand like, is that bad for them? Is mm. that screwing up their habitat somehow? There's a lot of things I'd like to know. I certainly wouldn't want to see one in captivity. So from an environmental and animal rights perspective, I'd want to make sure that it was good for them. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I lost a little bit of the intrigue i had for great whites maybe it's because as a kid i didn't have access to like shark week now we have shark week and like there's so many videos and stuff (laughs) they're a little less mysterious even though they're still very mysterious creatures but i also there's part of me that's like that's like a bucket list thing that i've had since i was a little kid i just can't imagine what it would be like to feel that fear you're being put down in water you can barely see a few feet and this giant creature that is a a known predator. Apex predator. What does apex predator mean? That means that that's at the very top of the food chain. In its ecosystem, yes. it's at the top of the food right. chain. Like there's nothing. We kill great whites, but in its natural environment, there's nothing that's killing great whites. They're an apex predator. And also there's a lot of myths around them, thanks to the movies and all of that. This mythology, they're human predators. I mean, they're they're it's not rare. trying to kill us. They're just trying to eat. And they're. I think a lot of people know by now, they often mistake us for seals or something else, like another meal. I'd be also happy to observe it like from a distance in a boat. Like you see those videos of them diving out of the water and stuff. That'd be really fascinating. Although I think it'd It'd be disturbing to watch them, like, kill a seal or something. I don't think I'd want to see it eat another creature in front of me. Mm-hmm. I think it would be pretty magnificent because I bet you they're a lot bigger and a lot. I bet you that. Can you imagine the energy in the water? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe I've become more sensitive as an adult. I feel like if you put me in that environment, not only would the anticipation of knowing I was about to see a shark be really terrifying. The anticipation, I think, is like such a strong emotion. But actually seeing this massive predator in its own environment, I'm the one like intruding. So naturally, it deserves to rule that situation. Even if I felt like I was in a safe space, I don't think we can control that feeling of fear. We are designed as human beings to fear predators. So that would be a a great opportunity (laughs) to practice being present and controlling our fear in a way that I've never had to control it before. And massively uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Massive discomfort in that yeah, situation. Yeah, even thinking about it. But the other thing <laughs> I was going to say is the energy. If you attune yourself to the energy of other beings and just 
the world around you, like you can sense a lot of things. Like the more you allow yourself to become sensitive, this is one of the reasons that I want to own up to being sensitive instead of trying to develop a thick skin. I'd rather be sensitive than have thick skin because I think that's, it's like we're choosing to numb ourselves or something or become really strong when reality, I think we're designed to be sensitive and aware. So can you imagine, Jason, what it would be like to feel the energy of that being? And there might be more than one too. (laughs) And not just like within your vision, but imagine what's beyond what your vision can see in that water. It's exciting. I mean, it's exciting, but also you're being lowered into deep water in the middle of the ocean. Like, I don't know. I've gone skydiving and this seems a lot less frightening than skydiving to me. I like this idea. I think this is we ding, ding, ding. We now he knows how to here. make me uncomfortable. He's like, okay. It's, it's like on, on one of those reality shows where you like to Tahiti. You tell the producers what your greatest fear is. And they're like, oh, that's great. And then like a few weeks later, the producers are like, guess what? We're putting you in a situation mm-hmm. based on your greatest fear. Do you have a greatest fear? I don't know if we have enough time to dive into that. You can make it as succinct as you want. <laughs> my fear right now is to be late for my yoga class, to be honest. <laughs> okay, good. Good answer. Because I want to go get my teacher's pet spot in the front of the class <laughs> and go in and sweat it out in this yoga class. So right, right now, the anxiety, I'm the discomfort that I'm feeling in this very moment is that of the fear of being late. Well, then perhaps we'll put a pin. <laughs> we'll put a pin in as a full episode, which I think greatest fears could be a full episode in its entirety, honestly. So treat this as a teaser, if you will, for a new episode talking about our greatest fears. And Whitney, thank you for teaching me more about you. There were some things you shared I didn't know. I didn't know about the great white stuff. A lot of things you shared, and I appreciate you being open and vulnerable because that is the spirit of this experience on This Might Get Uncomfortable. And for more glimpses into who we are and our philosophies of life and mental health and emotional wellness and everything, you can go to wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We've got a blog there with dozens of posts. Also, we'll link again to the show notes of this episode and the resources and things in the cute pictures probably we mentioned so you guys can see what I was trying to describe. And for more resources, you can also download our workbook, You Are Enough, and our free training series, also our Wellness Warrior training. And we will see you for another episode. I think we'll talk about our fears next time. Sounds like a juicy transition. Next time is very relative to what episode they're listening to. That's so. true. A future <laughs> episode about fears. Uh, we love you. Thank you for listening. And we will be with you for another episode soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 